Welcome to Season 2 of Football and Covered. In Season 1, we took you inside Blackburn and Leeds, Portsmouth and Liverpool, FIFA and a lot more. Heard about extraordinary stories from football chaos, cock-ups and outright corruption. This season, we're going inside eight more Premier League clubs, as well as having two special episodes, one about life after the Premier League and one about the very future of club football at the highest level. I'm your host, Will Brazier, and with me every episode is Sporting Intel's Nick Harris. Nick, how are you? I'm good, thanks. How are you? Are you excited to spend about 10 to 12 more hours with myself? I'm absolutely thrilled, particularly as I'm doing it, not in my um, kitchen like last time, but in my fancy new office. Yeah, lovely. I'm sure we'll get into that in great detail. This season, we'll also be joined by a guest each week, usually a fan of the club we're talking about, or someone who has followed them closely and knows all the inside stories. As well as sharing all the usual inside stories from each club, we'll be looking, of course, at the owners of the club, how the current owners came to be and where they're taking the club so far. This week, the featured club is Leicester City. Miracle title winners in 2015-16. And joining Nick and I, I'm delighted to say we have James Sharp. James, I'm so excited to talk about this. You're not the only one. Uh, Thanks for having me on. Um, Yeah, when Nick asked if I would like to come on and talk about Leicester winning the title, I was like, how long have you got so yeah I'm buzzing to be here thanks for having me on and uh, can't wait to start chatting about the boxes so you're a reporter at the mail on Sunday now but at the time you were in the thick of it to say the least yeah so as you say now I'm at the mail on Sunday but before that I spent six years at the Leicester Mercury the local newspaper in Leicester where I was one of the two Leicester City reporters who was there every game watching them go and win the title and then get to the quarterfinals of the Champions League and see all of that wonderful stuff happening firsthand. It was a, an incredible time to be around the club and who knows if they can ever do it again, but uh, what a time that was. Nick, um, you're particularly excited about this episode. Can you explain why? Yeah, because I think what happened with Leicester in 2015-16 will resonate with every fan of every football club, every mediocre football club like the one that I support and the one that you support, Will. Every fan that thinks that in this age of the money era of oligarchs and gazillionaires that there will never ever be any chance to come close to winning the league title. What Leicester achieved in that miracle of 15-16 showed that, albeit with a following wind, with all the contenders having crises simultaneously, with the right combination of cheap players and a charismatic manager and plenty of luck and substandard from the usual candidates, that somebody can actually come through and still win the Premier League title. Even now, thinking about Leicester 15-16, it's an absolutely extraordinary feat, isn't it? I just It kind of makes me excited again on, on Leicester's behalf that it actually happened. And I just think probably it never will happen. We'll come to it later. It's the most unlikely event in human history. But the fact that it happened, I think, is so important to show, um, show people that it can happen. Every fan in the country knows that before that season, Leicester's closest league title was 28-29 under William and with their star striker, Arthur Chandler. I mean, everyone in the world knows this, don't they? Um, that they missed out on the title to the Wednesday by a single point. That season, they had a 10-0 wheel against Portsmouth and that star striker scored six goals. That's the kind of thing that everybody knows. We're going to tell you stuff about Leicester that you don't know in this podcast. But I think that's why it's so important because it just shows people that it may be really unlikely, but one day, one day, Rodney, it could happen to your club. 
James, obviously we're going to be talking about all the highs of that season, but being a Leicester City fan, to get to that point, obviously it's a bit of a roller coaster. Um, just want to hear about some of your experience. I mean, going down to League One, fighting it back, but what, what was it like to be a Leicester fan up until that point? Yeah, I mean, that was an unbelievably low moment. I mean, I grew up in a small village in northwest Leicestershire and was always going to be a Leicester fan, was always a Leicester fan. That was just always how it was going to be. And I had the Leicester City wallpaper and the bed sheets and the curtains and the lampshade and all that like, team photos posted on the wall and all that kind of stuff. Um, and this was in, in the 90s where before the kind of recent success, that was really one of the golden eras of uh, of Leicester City and I kind of grew up with the likes of Steve Walsh and Muzzy Is It and Emil Heskey under under Martin O'Neill like kind of playoff finals Walsh silencing Derby in 94 Claridge's shin in 96 those League Cup title wins um, all that kind of stuff Can I ask two questions before the 15-16 then what was the one highlight that was stood out for you and secondly when you become a reporter and a journalist and, and covering the club that you that you support and love, you know, how exciting was that? Well, the first question, the, the kind of standout moment, would have been one of the League Cup wins. I think um, the the Tranmere being the one in two thousand was one that kind of I remember very vividly. Uh, or the Claridge's shin in ninety six. I think that was I would have been six then, so that was my first real vivid memory of of Leicester doing something and then yeah dream job really and uh, something that I never really expected to do and the reality of it is a lot different to how you perceive it when you're a fan looking on and I kind of had to separate the knowing what it's like to run a football club to being able to love and enjoy and watch what happens on the pitch. I mean, back to the 90s, I think a lot of people, particularly younger fans and younger listeners, won't realise that back in, in, in 1996, in the mid-90s, Leicester were really, for a few years, an absolutely archetypal, stable Premier League club, finishing in the top half of the table under Martin O'Neill, 9th, 10th, 10th, 8th, 13th, two League Cup wins, three finals in four years. And obviously that was all under Martin O'Neill. And, and things became a lot worse in the years after before they became incredibly, incredibly better. O'Neill left um, in 2000 for Celtic. Will, here's a quick quiz question for you, because I'm sure James will know this answer. Martin O'Neill was replaced, albeit temporarily and on a short basis, by somebody who is now one of three England managers to have managed Leicester's. Can you name the three? Um, Peter Taylor. Okay, have you looked this up? I've not looked this up, Nick. Peter Taylor, correct, correct. I hope after a series you can take that as a genuine point. Peter Taylor, um, Sven. Yeah, Sven's the one I always forget about. I've been mean, what a period. How many people can remember Sven Joran Eriksson was manager of Leicester? Because that was just after the time he'd had the Notts County phase as well, wasn't it? Yeah. I'm trying to think of the other one. Go on, James. I'm sure you know it. I didn't know it. And this was the one where I, I was like, it's three. Three? Again, it was caretaker, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. Yeah. Still, and then once I saw it, I, it, it, it did click with me. Um, I'm assuming it's Howard Wilkinson. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, I wouldn't have got that. But still, anyway, there we go. So, um, Peter Taylor took over and they were um, top for a few weeks. Sorry, in that, in the season, in the, in that season that they um, tailed off to 13th. Um, then, to cut a long story short, relegation, moved to new stadium, administration, not least in part due to the ITV digital fiasco. 
rescued by the consortium that included Gary Lineker, bought by Milan Mandaric, who God knows how many clubs he's been involved in, um, in 2007, down to League One by 2008-9, and then in 2010 bought by King Powers, Vichai. James, what was it like that sort of, I think all three of us support clubs that have been through the ringer. Tell us what it was like as a Leicester fan in that whole period of not knowing if you'd survive or who was going to own you. Yeah, it was really it was really grim actually. And I remember, um, I know uh, Alan Birchnell, the club ambassador, um, former player, really well, and he often talks about there were days where he w- you would go into the training ground and people would just on your way in, people would just be walking on their way out with cardboard boxes carrying all their stuff out because they just didn't know where the next penny was coming from and they didn't know what what the future of the club was going to be. It was a really kind of grim, dark time, especially coming from the highs of where they'd been. And that, as you say, like an established Premier League club who were pretty well, you knew what you were getting every year from them. Um, as you mentioned, that from the ITV digital fiasco really affected them. Uh, also, Peter Taylor being at the club is... Like, he is not well liked by Leicester fans at all. Um, mainly because he was kind of the oversaw the breaking up of that uh, very good team, spent a lot of money on not very good players, and it all kind of crumbled under him. Was he responsible for AD Akinbai? Uh Yes, I think so. That's, that's enough said on Peter Taylor, isn't it? Uh, yeah, <laughs> I've repressed most of that um, period of Leicester's history from my memory. Uh, alongside the relegation to um, League One, yeah, it was as, as you say, Nick. It, it was very difficult because you didn't know what the future of the club was going to be, and it really was a case of it may well not come through it. Um, but yeah, it was. It, I know Milan has uh, has owned a lot of clubs in his um, in his history of footballing, but yeah, Leicester kind of needed it at the time. What he does. To clubs um, and that the, the consortium led by Lineker was just crucial and without that Leicester wouldn't have survived I don't think When you get to 2011 James and then the, the rumours start of Vichai obviously you've got two, capac- two capacities on, from the journalist side and being a fan what were your sort of first impressions of him? I mean it, he arrived just not long before I started so I was purely as a fan at this point um, Nick will know clubs and fans of clubs that get taken over by foreign owners, you hear it all. They promised you the world. And as a fan of a club who you're not quite sure what the future's going to hold, you latch onto that and you buy into it and you get excited by it and you go, oh, yes, please, like this, this is wonderful, this is brilliant. But most of the time, it doesn't work out that way. And I remember when they, they took over, there was a, a sense of hope because less fans needed hope, but there was also uh, a sense of, is it going to just be another one of those takeovers that end like so many takeovers that we see up and down the football pyramid a lot? And I think, you know, if listeners go back to season one and listen to pretty much any episode, whether it's the Blackburn one or the Birmingham one, or the Aston Villa one, or any of them about owners who came in promising Champions League football um, and ended up delivering championship football more often than not, and, and chaos along the way. It, it's a common story. But obviously in Leicester, you had Vichai took over in 2010. And then in 2011, 
you know, it's easy to forget, but another of the England managers arrives. This is um, somebody with his recent CV at that point, Red Mexico manager, Ivory Coast manager, and then Leicester manager, which is Sven. I mean, what did you think with Sven arriving? I think, again, it was all part of this hurricane of um, high-profile... Uh, you had the takeover, then a high-profile manager comes in who then spends a lot of money on a lot of players who a lot of them turn out to be not very good. It was like, wow, like this is this is a former England manager taking over as Leicester, hugely charismatic, hugely famous, taking over this club. And again, it was one of, well, look how far we've come. But even at that point, you haven't really gone very far, but you've just been given a high-profile manager. But it was a, it was a blimey, this is madness. This is what is Leicester been taken over by Sven, not quite sure what to expect. And again, excitement because of who he is. But uh, another one where you're a bit like, ah, is it really going to turn out as well as you hope it's going to? And then just to see how many signings he made, it was just one after another, after another, after another. And the only one left now from that is um, is Kasper Schmeichel. Well, well, let's skip forward, shall we, to the dawn of uh, of what would become Leicester's glorious era or, or back in the Premier League for the start of 14-15. And by that point, you'd been out for 10 years. So you were now covering the club. What was that like getting back into the Premier League? Oh, it was amazing. Incredible. Because there's Leicester have traditionally been a yo-yo club um, and fans were used to that. But... For it to have been so long out of the top flight and there'd been a lot had happened in between that and it was almost like the club had rebuilt itself um, and it had under under Nigel Pearson. He'd done such an incredible job of having to go in after the Sven experiment had failed. It had raised Leicester's profile massively but there was a lot of problems there. A lot of So many players who were ageing on inflated wages and Pearson had to come in and both cut that down, change the the mentality of the squad changed the culture of the of the club and of the team and and do it while also trying to get promoted and it felt like a lot of work had gone into it and you could and you'd seen the club and the team build to a point where they were ready to go and 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 the season before you'd had the like the heartbreak of that playoff semi-final against Watford where Leicester win the penalty and you're a kick away from Wembley and they miss it and 20 seconds later you're down the other end, Troy Deeney scores and you're walking back to your car at Watford knowing you've got another 46 games before you can ever hope of Premier League football again. Can I mean, that, that season, the 14-15 season, it's first time back for 10 years. The first game of that season was at home to Everton on Saturday, 16th of August. I went to the game, the programme's here, um, finished 2-2. McGeady put them ahead and then uh, Ujoa equalised, Naismith scored, Chris Wood 2-2. Good solid start against um, against one of the bigger boys, but the program, which is the interesting thing, so it's absolutely full of a Veach, a really long question and answer thing about how appropriate it is in, in the twenty fifth anniversary of the club's parent company, King Power International, that they should be back in the in the top <laughs> flight. Um, there's pages and pages of of sort of we we can take the club to the very highest level and contend. Talk us through sort of a bit of how that season unfolded and, and what, what it seemed like inside the club as a fan and as a journalist staring at what was going to be inevitable relegation. Last season was really strange because you like you read those uh, programme notes from the owners and 
people from outside the club would go, as you say, you look at it and go, yeah, we've heard this before when, when big clubs get to the Premier League. And when they've taken over in the first place, they'd said, oh, our, our ambition is to turn Leicester into a established Premier League club within the next, I think it was maybe five, six years, something like that. And at, at the time then we thought, oh, that's a bit optimistic, shall we say. But then they got promoted and we'd seen the team play so well in the championships that, that Leicester fans and us in the reporting for the patch thought they'd do okay and thought they would be, they had enough about them to not go down. And they, they, they drew on the first day to Everton. They'd come back from behind and they'd gone, see, Leicester got a lot of spirit about them. And it was difficult because you'd go to matches and Leicester would play pretty well and they'd create chances. They wouldn't take them. They'd make a mistake. They'd get punished and they'd lose. And this kept, this kept happening and kept happening and kept happening. But there was, for whatever reason, and a lot of it comes back to the culture that, that Pearson had built and the kind of manager that he is behind the scenes. For whatever reason it was, they still believed and they still believed that they had what it took to survive. Look, before we move on to, to the miracle season, just one little bit of trivia that I, I can share with you from the 14-15 season. In terms of... Um, Leicester matches. There was a Leicester match against Everton, which was the 24th most watched Premier League match in the whole world that season. Um, I was doing a project that involved me seeing all the global data and, um, and, and mostly the, the top 100 most watched Premier League games involve obviously all the big six teams against the big six teams or Manchester United or Liverpool versus somebody else. But that season in 14-15, Everton versus Leicester, the away game at Goodison, was watched by so many people because obviously you had a Thai owner at Leicester and a Thai sponsor at Everton. And that meant that Thailand put one of their rare free-to-air games on in Thailand, had millions and millions of people watching it. So there you go. Something you won't hear on any other podcast. I don't know how much the whole Thai and King Power and the promotion of Thailand was part of the strategy, James. I mean, obviously it's there in terms of sponsorship and the programme and the messaging, but was it? did it come across as as being sort of too in your face or was it just part of who the owners were? Yeah, it was certainly something that it was, it was an important part of their strategy. Because um, they were obviously successful in, in getting people in Thailand engaged in Leicester City. I mean, you know, Thailand is a, is a country traditionally that would have masses of Manchester United and Liverpool fans. And suddenly Leicester are actually selling as many shirts as some of those big clubs in that country. Yeah, because Leicester's owners have they, they have that monopoly on, on duty-free in, in Thailand. If you would go to the airport and walk through duty-free, there are like Leicester shirts everywhere. And it pushed their brand, pushed Leicester's brand in that country massively. And it was a a big part of their plan uh, was to was to raise the profile in Thailand. And, and that worked. Um, but then as well as that, on top of that, it was also to do with because the culture was hugely important to them and the caring about cultures uh, is something that, was one of the big reasons why it worked at Leicester and why they have been successful at Leicester because they cared not only about their own culture, but they also cared about what Leicester was as a city and as a community. And they bought 
while they also asked Leicester to kind of buy into what they were about, we when we saw when the Thai king died, there was a minutes either silence or applause at Leicester's game. Yeah, which people from the outside would look at it and go, "That's a bit weird," uh, but it didn't feel massively weird like for, for that to happen. Yeah, uh, because and you, Leicester would famously have Thai monks come to the ground and bless either the ball or the players or whatever it was before games. Um, as you do. Yeah, as you do. And as we've seen, clearly it works. Uh, yeah, so they, they, they were very they're very big on, on culture and but they were also hugely keen on what Leicester was about and they invested into what Leicester is as a city and they, they, they invested in lots of the kind of surrounding area at Leicester and lots of charitable donations and even the small things like buying like fans drinks and scarves and shirts and stuff and it's all the kind of it's the easy wins where someone as cynical as Nick would look at it and go that's a bit bit of an easy win that and it is an easy win cynical <laughs> and, it, and, it, and it is an easy win but no no but it's good it's it's good it's where football clubs can do that simple stuff and yeah. show their fans that they're actually interested in the fact that you know they care about them maybe you know they give them a, a voucher for a pint or whatever or a, a flag on the chair you know it is. It's easy wins that so many football clubs fail to get right. Just yeah. small stuff that's relatively cheap that massively improves your sort of relationship with your supporters, which is obviously key. Yeah, and Leicester's owners are brilliant at that and have shown that they, that they do that. And that was one of the reasons why it's worked so well. And when um, Vichai died, you saw like the huge outpouring of... Um, of grief and also of tributes from yeah. Leicester fans and like the big shots above the ground of just the flowers panning out. Yeah, you wouldn't get that if they'd not made a connection between themselves. Even for for owners who were so re- kind of silent and so they they stood back a lot and didn't do loads of media interviews at all, were quite detached from from the speaking part of it. Yeah. You don't have that outpouring if you don't make a connection, which is obviously what they did. Absolutely. I mean, the same, I support Southampton, as some listeners will know, and it's the same at Southampton. Marcus Lieber, who saved Southampton, will be dealing with Southampton another episode. He, you know, he bought the club and saved it from genuine oblivion in 2009 and sadly died of a heart attack a year later, um, but then passed the club on to his daughter. And the same thing, he was very much quiet in the background, but he saved the club, he'd made a connection, he'd invested... Uh, and when he died, there was a huge, and there still remains a huge outpouring of of uh, sort of thanks and gratitude toward this, you know, foreign businessman who bought the club, invested in it, took care of it, and those kind of things do matter. Um, summer 2015. I mean, lots of odd things happened around Leicester. We'll come to. I think Will another quiz question. The, can you remember the weirdest thing that happened around Leicester City in 2015, summer 2015? And I'm not talking about the appointment of Ranieri, which the Guardian, amongst others, described as baffling. Uh, I don't actually, Nick. Can you not remember they went on holiday or not on holiday? Although it seemed like a holiday. Oh, the the. The incident with Nigel's son. Well, yeah, they went there. There was some bad behaviour, wasn't there, or some yes. some socialising that shouldn't have happened, shall we say? And w- which didn't all go well, did it? I mean, James, if if you could just wrap up for us or summarise the baffling Ranieri appointment. You've had the off-field stuff in Thailand, which didn't all go well for for whatever. Nigel's gone. From a Leicester point of view, it probably didn't all go well for a glorious season to come, did it? Yeah, that was a very strange summer because. 
after the highs of of what Leicester achieved surviving against all the odds and that team that had seemed to just, had finally found a way and clicked under Pearson for then the man who's built it all and led it all to then get sacked under such circumstances it was a huge blow for Leicester because they felt that they were going to it could put could well put them back a lot after working so hard to achieve it what happens next and there's a lot of people thinking well we're doomed now because the architect of it all has has gone and yeah now what the appointment of Ranieri just made it even stranger and just remind me because I can't remember did Nigel end up going because of what happened on the tour and he had to take responsibility for it or was there other stuff going on it was more a case of obviously the the tapes that were released there's also a racist aspect to what one of the boys had said. Yeah. Um, and I think Pearson's point was that it wasn't his son that had been racist. Um, and I think there was a bit, there was a disagreement really over what to do about it. Pearson yeah. didn't think that they didn't want his boy to be, to be sacked. Yeah. And then when, once um, they had got rid of James, there was a bit of a um, conflict. Yeah. And there was, okay. they just felt that, they didn't want to carry on going ahead, going through him. So it wasn't just the Guardian, was it? I think most of us thought Claudio Ranieri. I mean, Lineker made a tweet, didn't he? I can't remember what it was, but even Lineker yeah. was like Ranieri. What? Yeah, exactly. I mean, everybody thought, "What is this?" It was just baffling, wasn't it? What did you think, Will? Well, I was just going to say, James, on that we mentioned a lot about foreign owners coming in and bringing in high-profile managers, not necessarily because of their CV, but because of the name. But did you think under Pearson they'd sort of? change their ways and then all of a sudden you might be back to square one with Claudio Ranieri coming in? Uh, yes, because Leicester had found a way at the end of that season to play winning attacking football. They'd changed formation, they'd gone to three at the back with wing backs and they'd playing really fast, direct football. That start of the kind of counter-attack mentality was, was kicking in. And then they bring in an Italian manager and we have the perception of Italian football being quite attritional and uh, and there's a bit of a worry that it might regress to that. But, I mean, kind of more than that, really, they just hired a bloke who got sacked for losing to the Faroe Islands. So <laughs> it was less about the style of football that was the issue, but more the quality of the manager that they'd signed. The players were in, uh, were in Austria on a training camp and they knew that something was happening. And then the next thing they know a helicopter is landing and they know their manager is about to get off it and not none of them know that it's Ranieri that's getting off that helicopter. Oh, my God. Oh, wow. <laughs> that's X Factor. Yeah. So it was a big shock to everyone. Uh, yeah, we, there was the concerns that, is he really the bloke for it when he's just been sacked for losing to the Faroe Islands? <laughs> Let's get into the season, shall we? I'll just read the 11 players who played the most that season, the title-winning 11, shall we say. So we've got Schmeichel, Simpson, Morgan, Huth, Fuchs, Mares, Kante, Drinkwater, Albright, and Okazaki, Vardy. Even now, listening to those 11 players, <laughs> if you said these 11 players are going to win the Premier League title, it is just incredible, isn't it? Yeah. And again, all of those players in a similar buying into that kind of essence of Leicester being a club that, and as a fan base that want to achieve more than what they've been told they can achieve all of those players you go through that list and all of them have been told at some point that they aren't good enough Schmeichel let go by Leeds 
because Ken Bates was selling anyone that he could get money for. But at the time, the message that was given out by Simon Grace, the manager, was that Schmeichel wasn't good enough. Danny Simpson at United, uh, Robert Huth kind of let go by from Chelsea and Stoke, Fuchs, free transfer, Riyadh, told that he was kind of too skinny. Albrighton let go by his club Villa on a free transfer, one of the best free transfers that the Premier League will ever have seen. And Vardy, everyone knows Vardy's story of being let go. You go through that whole team and there are players there who had something to prove and people, players who have been told that for whatever reason, Kante too small, that they couldn't do what what they could and, and they went and did it. And yeah, that team, for all Leicester fans, will be able to reel that team off the top of their head forever. Yeah, 5,000 to 1 and people did bet on that 5,000 to 1 famously but a 5,000 to 1 winner I think it's worth stressing again was in betting terms the most unlikely single event to come to fruition in human history of any <laughs> genre as in I, I remember when it happened and I wrote a piece for the paper about it went looking at the longest ever odds on anything so no horse race in Britain in 300 years and two and a half million races had ever produced a winner price longer than 250 to one for example in 1964 a man from Preston called uh, David Threlfall bet 10 pounds that, that the man would walk on the moon by the end of the decade he got a price of a thousand to one which came off um, so that was one of the most unlikely things in human history he bought himself a sports car crashed it and died actually with his winnings so, the, so that's a salutary lesson um, Gore and winning Wimbledon on that extraordinary People's Monday in 2001 when he spent the fortnight talking about watching Teletubbies came in as a wild card 150 to 1 so that's not even 1 30th of as unlikely Greece to win Euro 2004 150 to 1 at the outside Alien Life to be confirmed by the end of any given year is generally speaking 100 to 1 so and 42 to 1 Buster Douglas to beat Mike Tyson in 1990 so 5,000 to 1 I couldn't find anything remotely, remotely close to those odds of a bet being placed on anything ever. That's how unlikely it was. Yeah. And my mum would, um, every season, has, uh, as she calls it, a silly pound on Leicester to win the league. Um, What, just literally a pound down at William Hill or whatever? Yeah. Yeah, any guesses on the one year that she didn't put that silly pound on? Anyway, let's get on to that season. I mean, just give us a few insights from that season, James, the sort of the things that really stand out for you as particular games, not necessarily the, the famous ones, but days when things just seem to be clicking. I mean, personally, as from, from, from an outside, uh, you know, I remember beating Man City 3-1 at City in the February. That was the game for me. But there must have been all sorts of things as the season unfolded, the pizza, Ranieri the camaraderie, I mean, all that stuff. Give us a flavour of what it was like inside that season. That was where Ranieri was superb and where he was brilliant and where he was able to do something that Pearson wasn't able to do and probably wouldn't have been able to do was his ability to control the circus was crucial in, in how Leicester did it. When he first started, there were some stories that I kind of heard about that kind of summed up what you expected Ranieri as a manager to be. Like there was one where in one of the first preseason games they came out and young Tom Lawrence now at Derby, who's a young player, came out with the armband on. And we were all going, Tom Lawrence is captain, what? That's weird. And we all bought I mean I I mean I wrote it at the time, going, 
oh, this is because Claudio is he's, he's so like he loves bringing through young players and putting faith in young players. So he's given the armband to one of the young up and coming Leicester players. That's why that's why he's done it. Kind of write that stuff. Only later to find out that he'd asked assistant Steve Walsh who to he should make captain, and he said Dean Hammond, the experienced midfielder over there, go and give him the armband. But then he gave Tom Lawrence the armband by mistake, thinking it was Dean Hammond, even though one's about 32 and one's 18. <laughs> so that was the kind of what we expected from that kind of craziness of uh, of Claudio. And that was like so that was so important to how Leicester um, got through that season. The Crystal Palace away game was huge for Leicester fans because they won that game. And for about half an hour after the final whistle, they stood in the away end singing now you're going to believe us, we're going to win the league. And he kept singing it and singing it and singing it to the point where the, the, the announcer, stadium announcer, was trying to plead with them to, to leave and go home. And he was like, please, can you all leave your seats carefully and depart the stadium? And they just didn't listen. They carried on going and kept singing and singing and singing for about half an hour after the final whistle. So that was the moment where Leicester fans started to believe that this was something more than just a fantasy. Uh, but I think what drove them on more than anything, really, was the behaviour of their rivals in that period. There was the famous picture of the Harry Kane tweeted of the Lions tweeting a picture of like this pack ready to hunt Leicester down. I remember I spoke to Leicester players who thought they it felt like, hang on a minute, like we're Leicester here, we're little Leicester, and like you're giving it the big one against us like you must think that we're better than a lot of people think us are if you're giving us this kind of credit and Vardy eventually tweeted a, a picture of Mufasa falling off the off the cliff from the Lion King and he'd had that like he'd had that saved in his drafts for a long time <laughs> Kante was I don't know who you think but the key players I mean from again from the outside you're looking at players like well Kante, Mares, Vardy Obviously, every, everyone did brilliantly, but those three particularly, it was like, where did this come from? Mares, how does he suddenly become, what was he, £400,000 or 140000 I can't remember, but nothing. And then obviously Vardy suddenly. Yeah, I mean, yeah, 400000 for Mares is just... Yeah. Leicester had Anthony Knockart as like a tricky French winger uh, before then. And then Leicester signed Mares for 400000 was it Algerian? And at the time we were told they, they, they said they think that Mares will be better than Knockart. And at the time we thought, wow, really? Like Knockart's very good for Leicester. He's won them games. And but then to see his development so much was, was like, he, he's got the best first touch of anyone that I've seen play live. It's just ridiculous. Um, Kante is, is so crucial to everything that happens. I mean, you, you, I mean remember Robert Hooth was asked, how on earth did a back four of Danny Simpson, Wes Morgan, Robert Huth and Christian Fuchs keep so many clean sheets and only lose three games? And his answer was, well, we had Kante in front of us. Yeah. And Vardy is just, as I said at the beginning of the podcast, he just left his greatest ever player. And yeah, he just, everything about him is what Leicester City is. That You know what you're going to get with Jamie. He doesn't pretend to be anything that he's not. He's outspoken, um, annoying. If you're not a Leicester fan, you probably really hate Vardy and you give him abuse. But if you're a Leicester fan, you would, you love him. And he is one of the most ruthless finishers in football. And 
even still probably doesn't quite get the credit that he deserves for just how good a, a striker he is. Yeah. And the last thing I think we should just look at briefly is which we're going to look at with all the clubs in this second season, which is sort of asking what is the point now? What, Where are Leicester and what is Leicester's future? Are Leicester title contenders? Can they be title contenders in the years ahead? This season, obviously, this will be going out in a week or two, so we don't know what the results will be. They've been very slightly wobbly just recently, but as things stand, Leicester are very much Champions League contenders, Champions League place contenders. Brendan Rodgers has done a good job. He's got some fantastic young players there. Recruitment seems good. You know, there is definitely a case, I think, if we've talked about a big six for, for years and years, that Leicester have very much, they've won the title and now this season appear to be sort of cementing their credentials to be in a big seven. I mean, how encouraging do you find it as a fan? Obviously, you're not on the Mercury now following them week to week, but as a fan... What do you think in terms of, you know, what what should Leicester's ambition be now? And, uh, and what do you think in terms of the owners? Obviously, Vichai sadly died in that horrific helicopter crash. But in terms of the owners and where they can take the club and, you know, what is the point of Leicester City in 2021? I think, I mean, I, I know you you tweeted out like a, a spreadsheet of Leicester being the next club below the rank of that top six. Leicester are clear kind of seventh in that list. Yeah, that- yeah, I did some number crunching on from the beginning of the 2015-16 season to today. Um, I'd looked at the result, how many games win, lose, draw, for and against, average points, and there's a very clear sort of seven. Uh, you know, Leicester are very much in seventh place behind the big six and clear of the eighth club. Yeah, and that's what I think, that is Leicester's ambition, and that is the club that Leicester City want to be. Yes, they won the league, and that happened way ahead of schedule for what anyone could have imagined, even though the owners came out and said, we want Leicester to be a challenging Premier League team. The building is being done now. We have the new £100 million training ground. You have a coach in Rogers who has improved every single one of those players that he has taken on. And Top, the new chairman, has the same vision as his father, wants to carry on that legacy. Their aim is for Leicester to become a member of that big seven, a team that is going to challenge every single season to be one of those big clubs. The problem they have and that they are aware that they have is that they, even though they are billionaire owners, they don't have the financial clout of the teams above them and probably won't do. Um, So that's their issue. And they have to find a way of being able to compete with those teams without having the force financially that they have. And they've done that very well recently because they are exceptional at investing uh, funds from players sold into new players who still are now enable them to become better and, and bigger. However, they still do sell a key player at the end of every summer, whether it be Mares or Chilwell or Maguire or whoever. At some point, if they do want to become a member, a fully fledged member of those massive teams, you have to find a way of not being a team that gets cherry picked every season. Because if you do, you have to be exceptional every single season at replacing those players and investing that money. So far, they have been exceptional at doing that, but it doesn't take much for you to invest it badly one summer and then it all comes unraveling. So I think, where they are at the minute is great for Leicester fans and brilliant for what their club wants to achieve. It's just a question of how then do you take that next step? Do you just 
keep doing what you're doing and get to a point where you naturally are able to keep your best players or yeah or how do you do it but at the minute they are well on track I think to being a member of a, of a big seven which I think is what Leicester as a club want to be and in the meantime you'll always have the miracle season no one can take that away exactly thank you very much for listening to football and covid series two make sure you go and check out Nick at Sporting Intel and we'll be back with another podcast very soon <laughs>